Be the best rugby coach you can be. Welcome to the Rugby Coach Weekly Podcast with head coach Dan Cottrell, where you learn hints and tips from the rugby coaching community. Let's get started. Hello and welcome to the Rugby Coach Weekly Podcast. My name is Dan Cottrell and today we are very lucky to have on the podcast Dr. Suzanne Brown, who's a clinical psychologist and director of Emotionally Connected. She's a keen sportswoman herself and extremely brave. And I know she's extremely brave for two reasons. One, she's got three brothers who uh, who put her through all sorts of different sports when she was younger. So she must be as hard as nails. And the second thing is very recently, she shared a stage with Eddie Jones, the England coach, uh, while she was quizzed by Russell Earnshaw. So I'm not sure which was scarier, being quizzed by Russell Earnshaw or Sherry stay with Eddie Jones. Anyway, welcome, Suzanne. Hi, Dan. Thank you for having me. That's okay. And I'm really looking forward to asking you some tough questions because I think that's uh, interesting in terms of being put on the spot. But Mm -hmm. let's ask the first question, which is, was it scary being on stage with Eddie? And what was the occasion? Um, so hearing what you've just said, I think perhaps maybe I had good preparation growing up with my three brothers, um, leading me into this. Um, but of course, sort of, um, I guess it was really enjoyable is the the first thing to say. So how it came about was it was part of the Wellington Festival. Um, and I've been doing some work with Russell Earnshaw, uh, John Fletcher and Peter Walton over at the RFU. And they asked me to come and present. Uh, thinking about psychology and uh, particularly clinical psychology and the adolescent brain um, over on stage with Eddie. Uh, It was Peter Short and Ed Hall as well. So yes, of course, nervous, um, but actually it was was a lot of good fun. And I think I learned a huge amount um, as well as hopefully sharing some insights. So what did you learn from uh, that group or Eddie? Um, So, well, I think it was so there was about 100 coaches on the day and they asked some really um, very thoughtful and meaningful questions. I think time and time again, I'm you know, finding that people, particularly, you know, coaches across the age ranges are so passionate and dedicated in this field. Um, So really thoughtful questions, a lot of interest in thinking about uh, the relationship between the coach and athlete. had some really great conversations in terms of thinking with Peter Short about uh, sort of gender in the sport and um, particularly what it's like to be a guy in rugby and the um, I suppose the uh, impositions that are placed on you um, and then just across the board so talking with Eddie around thinking about mentorship and uh, leadership and actually how coaches can really develop. Um, at any stage, but particularly how to seek out um, good mentors. And of those meaningful questions, mm. I'm sure you've you have got lots of questions which you've come across time and time again. Which ones in particular do you think, ah, right, I've not necessarily thought about that. Uh, so here's my approach, which might be different because this is a fresh question. Yeah, so um, there was lots of questions on the night. Um, particularly thinking around, so one of the questions that was asked was the differences between um, females in sport, so the lack of kind of um, 
recognition I suppose or voices and so I think that was quite quite nicely paralleled with perhaps me being the only female on stage um and I think that's quite similar across you know different sporting arenas you tend to find um I suppose less uh, visibility but actually this real need and uh, the importance for us to be considering the differences um I suppose thinking around the random questions that were asked were um, things about if I, I think it was something like if I uh, was to be a head teacher of a school, what are the type of things um, I would want to implement? Uh, and thinking about if I could take one person with me um, to create a new game, who would that be? And the answer that I gave to that was um, my niece, who's uh, just turned seven, um, just because I think they have children have such wonderful insights and creative thinking and imagination. So they always bring a fresh approach to things. OK, so I know you don't have your niece there to yeah. help you with the next question. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we've uh, one of the reasons why I was keen to talk to you is because you've been quite a leader in the idea behind safe uncertain which is something which I've talked to Rick Shuttleworth about and to others and I know that you had a big part to play in this and perhaps you could just say it gives a bit of an introduction to what your role has been in uh, pushing this idea forward. Yeah so this came about from a youth development phase um, conference at Birmingham City Football Club where I was asked to present and that was something that I chose to present on. So the ideas that I presented on are really drawn from family therapy. Um, So Barry Mason's work on safe and certainty. And then I've combined that with more dynamic approaches, um, thinking around theories of anxiety um, to create. And on the website, you'll see the triangle of safe and certainty. So I think it's you know, simplistic in its ideas, but I think it's it's very applicable um, across, you know, many environments. So the ideas behind it are that inherently within all of us, we have a need for safety. Um, so and this relates to attachment, which we'll probably talk about in a little bit. But in essence, then that we, we actually have a, a genuine need for safety in our environment, both internally and externally. Um, And this sometimes gets confused with a desire for certainty. So um, because we don't like necessarily uh, unpredictability, uh, what we tend to do is err on sometimes perhaps the side of caution or certainty. And actually that can really constrain and stifle creativity. So um, there's four quadrants um, that you probably talked to Rick about. And just to very briefly, I guess, talk through those, uh, unsafe uncertainty would be an environment where it's actually quite chaotic. Um, It's probably the most toxic of all of the um, quadrants that are talked about or triangles. Um, So there can be, in in these cases, a lot of micromanagement or over control. Um, There can be quite a fear of the consequences, but it's very unpredictable. You don't know what uh, response you're going to get potentially from if we're talking about it in sports terms from the coach Um, it might lack in direction um, and often as a result of that unsafe uncertainty people can then be propelled into an unsafe certain position so off the back of it because it feels so chaotic and uncertain um, people then may try to introduce sort of checklists or guidelines Um, they can as as much as um, 
it's more certain it's still unsafe. So um, potentially, for, for instance, you know that there will still be blame when things go wrong. Um, and this is where you can see a lot of athletes and, and sort of children, adolescents falling into kind of a learned helpless role. Uh, now, on the other side of that, you've got uh, safe certainty. So whilst um, in this area, there is an element of safety within the environment between the relationship of the coach and the athlete or between the team, um, it's actually, I suppose, almost you, you're working on autopilot. So there's not any really anxiety online that's going to help you maximize uh, or optimize your ability to learn, retain information, um, achieve your potential. Um, so you can be quite blind to other viewpoints in this and you, you're kind of just going along with the motions. So the ideal scenario when thinking about um, safe and certainty is actually that you have the safety within the relationships around you, within the environment around you. Um, but it's then really an environment that fosters uh, things like, you know, creative thinking, resilience. It's quite edgy and energetic. People are willing to take risks. They know that if they take a risk, and actually it doesn't come off, that's a learning opportunity. So then they can go back um, and recalibrate and then approach and try it again. So you know that you're not going to be punished for taking those risks. And actually that's the, the optimum environment for um, people really excelling and achieving their potential. So two things come out of that for me. Um, first of all, um, what, do, what do you mean by internally and externally safe? Yes, that's a great question. So um, if you look at the triangle of safe and certainty, you'll see that there's, it's broken down into two triangles. Internally, we have a sense of um, thinking about our own emotions. So thinking about internally how safe we are. So that helps us guide, you know, thinking about in our external environment, how safe we are in that. So for instance, for people that are Considering we're all humans, we're all driven by emotions, um, people learn over time how acceptable or unacceptable particular emotions are. That's something that's guided by, you know, personal experiences, whether that's trauma or not, um, learned experiences. And they become, um, I guess, able or less able to use those emotions to guide them in their behavior. So, if you break down the word emotion, it literally means to evoke motion. So providing that, say, for instance, if we're looking at this in the context of coaches and athletes, if you have a coach that is particularly, let's say, critical or um, shaming in some way, the, the child or the, the adult in that situation, given the constraints of the environment, may initially respond with the appropriate emotion, perhaps, of anger. Um, but actually they learn very quickly whether that that's an acceptable emotion or not. So if that's not an acceptable emotion, that's going to uh, influence whether you get picked for the team or um, your relationship in that moment, then they learn to suppress that. They, they learn to actually put a lid on that. Now, you know, the emotions in general, um, all emotions I believe are healthy. So we don't really, I don't talk about them in terms of positive or negative so emotions are literally there to drive and motivate our behavior. What we do with them can be more positive or negative. So your internal state is referring to actually what's going on inside of you, your levels of anxiety in relation to these emotions that are being evoked. And externally, that's going to be influenced by the people in your environment, whether your environment is a safe place or not, 
and that's largely made up of the other people that are in that environment. So, uh, for instance, a chap called Louis Pozzolino talks about this idea of sociostasis. So the idea that we influence each other. So, um, for instance, that our brains and our bodies are really being influenced by other people in our environment, that that's how our brains have evolved and adapted to be regulated or um, stressed um, by others in our environment. Okay. Um, If we want to create uncertainty in the environment, and you're talking about everybody within the environment trying to operate in a safe environment, Mm -hmm. how can you create that sort of competitive edge when nobody's really supposed to be getting angry. They're just supposed to be saying, oh, well, I accept that mistake and uh, that's fine, I'll try again. After a while, everyone's going to say, oh, it doesn't matter if we make mistakes, okay, we'd be, we're nice to be better, but it doesn't matter because it's all, it's all fine, it's all laughs and uh, the coach is not going to shout at us. Yeah, so I don't, I don't think it's about, um, I think it's about using emotions adaptively. So it's not about... Um saying that anger's not allowed or anger is allowed, it's it's all in response to what's happening. So for instance, if somebody is uh, being placed into a position where their natural response would be anger, say for instance, they feel they're being unfairly criticised, and the reality may be that they are being unfairly criticised, you know, we don't know this as a hypothetical, then their natural response, as would anybody's, would be it would elicit anger. Now, what I am saying is, over time through experiences, we learn how acceptable that is to allow that. So that may be, you know, some people are able to assert themselves. That's the healthy use of anger, that you use it for asserting and um, putting down your boundaries. Now, for people that potentially haven't had good experiences of anger, you can either go one of two ways. You become very passive in the face of anger, or the other side of that spectrum is that you can become aggressive. So you might see people that kind of completely blow up and it seems really um, incompatible with what's happened. Um, So it's not necessarily about creating the uncertainty in the environment really comes after the safety has been established. So everything then is founded and built upon that relationship that you've got. If you don't feel safe with somebody, you're not going to be able to take risks. You're not going to be able to try things that are outside of your comfort zone. So the the first and foremost part of that is because we are social creatures, we're built to relate to one another. So if you you haven't got the relationship right in that aspect, in that regards, you're going to find it hard to get the best out of your athlete. Now, uh, fascinating how you said athlete at the end of it, because I'm now thinking that uh, I've got a group of kids and I'm thinking of this has happened many times to me and I'm sure other coaches are listening and found this, mm. that at the end of the game, uh, you look at the score, we've lost, uh, five of the kids are off crying, five are saying, where's the burger van? Yeah. And then uh, three minutes later, two of the kids are off crying at the burger van. Mm-hmm. One is being consoled and one is sitting quietly on their own, uh, contemplating what's happened. How can you as a coach, be expected to deal with that wide range of emotion, especially with young players, but I mean, I suppose with old players. I know different people react in different ways. Is it it so difficult that we can't do it or are there there ways? No, I definitely think there are ways. And I think this is where having an understanding of attachment really comes in. And I think this is where it's really crucial and fundamental um, to understanding that 
I think the reality is, yes, you may have, you know, 15 players on the team and then, you know, you've got um, your subs and whatever. They are individual, so you do need to know your players individually. Obviously, that creates more pressure on the coach and um, I'm not taking for granted, in fact, how, you know, pressured they already are. But what I am saying is if you have an understanding of attachment, so to describe that briefly, it's it's basically our innate need for two things. One is connection. So we have an innate need for connected safety with others and we have a need for separation and autonomy. So people Sorry, can I just stop you there? So you're saying that everyone has that, mm-hmm. yet you will know people who prefer to be on their own. Yeah. So is is that is, does that include that group or is it just is that everybody has roughly the same amounts? Well, everybody will have that innate need. That's part of attachment theory. So just like if you if you think about other animals that through evolution, because it because it comes down to basic survival through evolution, we we know that we exist and we are more likely to prosper in groups. We need others to survive. Um, so in animals, there's something called imprinting, which is their ability to then ensure their survival. Now, if you think about it from uh, our perspective, so as human beings, babies are relatively helpless for a long period of their life when they're first born. So they absolutely need to ensure that they are looked after by a caregiver, so often the parents. So that it's basically wired into us. We have this need to attach to others. And we have a need that we need to be able to then become an autonomous, separate person. Now, the people that I think are able to do this well in terms of thinking about coaches is recognising both elements of that. I think there becomes difficulties in in terms of thinking about uh, potentially difficulties that you'll see on the pitch or individual behaviours when there's a problem in one of those areas. So you might find that, you know, for children that are securely attached, they can both come to the coach when they need help and assistance. They don't have a problem in asking for that. They don't feel that they're going to be, um, uh, you know, it's going to bring about shame or embarrassment for asking for that help. And they're able to go off and try things. They're able to take risks. They're able to then explore their environment on the pitch, off the pitch. The difficulties that come in are then for thinking about children who are insecurely attached. And so that's broken down into two different types. So you again, relaying it to sport, you might find that um, you've got particular kids in your team where in a way, and this would be called an insecure avoidant attachment, that actually what they will do is they will focus on the task. They'll focus on the autonomy at the expense of coming to the coach. So they, they will not be approaching the coach. That is uh, too anxiety provoking for them. They, they will be very focused on just getting on with the task. The other side to that is the children that, or adults that may be thought of as insecure and ambivalent. So these are the people that actually, they, they stick close to the coach, right? You can't get them to go off and do this. <laughs> they constantly want your attention. They constantly want to know that you're watching them. Um, so, you know, and again, that, that comes at the expense of them going off and exploring and becoming an autonomous being. There's, there's a final type, which is thought of as disorganized, which is where, um, from their previous experiences, but if, again, relaying it to coaching, that actually the coach would be the source of both um, comfort and pain. So actually, in a way that it becomes very chaotic and unorganized, and that that would be a bit more of the unsafe, uncertain uh, triangle. 
So we're going to have obviously many different children that respond to the same event in different ways. And what I'm saying is that that's really driven by our attachment styles, what we've learned to expect from others, because your attachment builds up a sense of who you are and what you deserve, how safe and secure others are in your environment, and then how safe and predictable the world is. If you've had repeated experiences where, you know, the adults around you, you can go for them for help. Uh, you're not going to be shamed or embarrassed, but actually you're allowed to express your emotions and you're helped with that. You're regulated. It's, you know, the adults help to make sense of that for you. These are the kids that you're going to find will really thrive and excel. You'll get the other kids that obviously are responding differently based upon their attachment styles in that in that circumstance. Really, what's being said here is that a, a, a sports coaching level one mm. needs to spend three days on understanding these different types and how to deal with them and about uh, 30 seconds on the technical skills of the game. Well, I mean, the reality is, and, you know, I guess I, I don't know, you may not agree, but when I think about it, everything is mediated through the relationship. So, you know, if you're giving feedback, whether that is positive, neutral or negative, that is all going to be taken through the context of your relationship. You know, we can certainly, if I think about the people I have a better relationship with, I'm more able to hear the feedback that may be difficult for me to hear, but I need to hear it. Just like it's also going to be the feedback that I can really take in. So the praise that can really help me grow and develop, but everything is mediated through the relationship. And I think, you know, attachment understanding, not just in sport, but, you know, in schools, it's becoming a really, gladly, it's, it's gaining more traction, yeah. but it's absolutely needed. And it follows on from something which is beginning to be said quite a lot now, is teach the athlete, not the sport, mm -hmm. teach the person, not the game, yeah. and lots of things will fall into place from that. Yeah. So that leads me quite neatly to another question, mm -hmm. which is about, it's sometimes said that players need to learn how to learn, mm -hmm. and uh, we want to create the, the right environment. And if we want to create the right environments to allow the players to become the people who can respond better to us, do we need to also coach the players to understand this themselves, to almost know where they fit on that attachment? I'm not sure if it's a spectrum, but in the attachment um, arena. Yeah, I think this is, um, so this is a really interesting question, actually. So um, if you think about it, and again, this is something I think we that isn't known enough about, but actually the kind of brain development of of children adolescents and adults are you know when you're coaching an adult it's very different to when you're coaching a child so we know that there's two huge growth periods for uh people which is one when you're first born up until about the age of five and then your brain goes through massive changes during adolescence so for boys that's roughly um from about the age of 12 all the way up until you're 30 right so your brain the adult brain is not the same as an adolescent's brain so when you're thinking about helping kids to learn, you really, I think, a better understanding around the brain and the fact that the brain is actually still developing. So you are literally influencing the architecture of the brains of these children that you're working with. And so you absolutely need to help scaffold and help provide a framework 
around learning, but at the same time also appreciate that given that we have, again, our emotions which enable us to, you know, navigate our environment, we have a natural tendency to want to seek out things. So the curiosity uh, that you see within children that kind of tends to wane off once they've been uh, through the schooling system um, actually is there. So it's also about how we get this balance between removing the obstacles to learning, which is already there, it's already innately within us all, um, but also providing a scaffold by understanding that children's brains and adolescents' brains are very different to adults. So for instance, um, particularly thinking about the emotional part of the brain. Um, so if you kind of separate the brain into three parts, uh, it's called the triune brain, if anyone wants to read more about it. You have the kind of um, very primitive part of the brain, which is about your survival. There is the emotional sort of limbic system of the brain. Um, and then on top of that, there is the executive functioning and um, the cortex, which actually helps us do things like planning, inhibition organization sequencing so that last part of the brain that I've talked about there is is particularly the part of the brain that's going through huge development over that adolescent period so what you tend to find is the emotions are very much there and wired in but your ability to regulate them um, and your ability to uh, you know think about consequences to actions isn't as wired up and that's the things that we need to be helping you know adolescents with we need to be providing that framework and helping co-regulate helping them understand what's happening inside in order for them to also then make the best use of that whilst encouraging because especially during adolescence that's when this real drive for exploration kicks in so actually teenagers really want to be autonomous it's not you know just to annoy their parents or you know, this is the time and the age where people are actually, evolution has stated that they will go off and, and make their own way in the world. So it's really about how we harness this because it's naturally there. It's, it's also sometimes just what we're putting in the way and the obstacles that as adults we impose onto the children. We want to make them less scared, less scared of why they felt that and why things around them are happening in the way they they are is that right yeah I guess it's about integrating and creating this coherent narrative so why this is happening so helping them understand that you know you're really helping them link up um these areas of the brain it's literally you know your interactions with people change the way brains develop so you know if you're helping a child or an adolescent um to think about you know their emotional responses in the moment you know I get a lot of people talking to me about you know, I'll say to this kid, you know, why have you just done that? And he'll say, I don't know. And sometimes, you know, that is the reality. They don't know. The brain isn't communicating in the way that an adult brain is, is linking all of that up. So it, it's acting and it might be a little bit more impulsive. We know that especially during sort of adolescence, teenagers' reward centre in their brain is more sensitive. So it means they're more likely to take risks. But you're helping them to make sense of that. And really, if you can actually... Um, use that as a catalyst it, it's the perfect time for um adolescents to really thrive in sport you know that they're, they're at a time where they're wanting to take risks they're really drawn to be with their peers so you know you're really able to kind of help create that safe environment within the team as well um and it's it's how we utilize and make the most of that not just for on the pitch but off the pitch too which brings me around to thinking about competition 
and the amount of competition within a team can be quite scary if you're selecting players and not selecting players. Yeah. So how, with given what you've just said there, there's inevitably a moment when you're going to have to say to a player, right, you're not starting this game or you're not even on the bench and it could be for a big cup game. Mm-hmm. Um, given all the things that you've just been saying, yeah. how, are you, how are you approaching that sort of situation with an adolescent where they are perhaps struggling to make some of the connections, as you said? Yeah, so I guess really in yourself as a coach, having the openness to accept that you're going to get uh, an emotional response right because emotions are healthy normal um that you know they they're going to be feeling disappointed they might be feeling angry and it's really having the empathy to you know show that you understand that it's having the curiosity to wonder what that impact had right so you know and in the way that you link it up and um the way that I guess you know parents do this for their children probably very naturally and I'm sure coaches do it very naturally um, but it's really about the the making sense. So because we're, we're kind of coming from a, an approach where anybody's going to benefit from this this way of relating to one another, it's it's the being curious. Like, I wonder how that makes you feel. Um, and you know, and sometimes they won't be able to tell you. So it's about you know taking their shoes. You know, if that was me and I was in your position, I might be feeling X, Y, Z. And that really then demonstrates that you're giving permission for those those feelings and those experiences, and you're interested in in their internal world, and you're trying to help them make sense of it. Because of course, you know, um, part of uh, life is failure or not getting what we want, and that that's just as important that we we learn how to do that and we learn how to do that well, because that will impact on future success or how you manage a loss in order to be able to use that to strive forward you know that's in essence what we talk about when we're talking about resilience or grit that that's really what it's about being able to take those experiences make sense of them integrate them but then use it to drive you forward given that mm-hmm. uh, the rfu uh, you may be aware of in the last couple of days has put out an edict suggesting that uh, players up to a certain age should always have half a game um, over the weekend and a lot of coaches have written back uh, in reply saying well we do that anyway I rotate my team religiously and we give them all equal playing time other coaches have said this is absolutely ridiculous you should pick your best team every week and there should be cups and there should be leagues because as you've said I'm not saying you're saying this as the be all and end all but they should experience failure because life is about failure. Is there a is there a point at which it is acceptable, perhaps, to put that sort of stress and strain on a player to fight for their team, uh, for their team place, or is it dependent on the group, or is it dependent on other factors? So, I mean, I'd be interested to think about you know, the different responses that people are having, because obviously, I guess it's it's connecting with people um, in different ways. I think there has been some research, particularly that the RFU have done, that's really looked at what is it that people get out of playing a game? What, what is it that they want? And that will change over, you know, the course of, I'm sure, their stage of development. But, you know, talking about younger children, then a lot of, I think, research suggests that 
the winning isn't so much the element of of what they get out of it it's being able to play with their friends it's you know being able to have fun it's enjoying the sport and I think there is a huge um conversation happening around actually if, you, if you're not embedding that early on if you're not if, you, if it's becoming um already so results driven at an early age you're going to get a huge amount of children dropping out because if they're not being played then you know that's no fun for anybody so you know play is but but surely then sorry to interrupt surely then that is good for them because then they'll learn about failure which this is suggested you'll learn about failure and you'll learn how to deal with it and if you don't deal with it this time you'll have another chance to deal with it another time and so on so you build up that and for the fact you've dropped out of the sport maybe means that you're you shouldn't be in the sport in the first place. Mm, well, I would no, I, I think I would disagree. I think if you're being sat on a bench, actually the healthy thing would be to drop out of sport. It's the same kind of thing, you know, in terms of when I think about therapy. If you're not having any meaningful change, if you're not seeing results, if you're not engaged in the process, then actually the healthy part of the person should drop out of therapy it's the same as sport if you're not actually getting the opportunity to play then actually that's the healthy part of that person saying this isn't for me because you know if I'm never being given the opportunity if I'm always benched if I'm never picked because it's so results driven from such an early age then then why would anybody stay in that situation you know I think that it's the healthier part that then says well, I'm going to go off and, and seek out something else because this isn't fulfilling my needs. This isn't allowing me to be part of an actual team where I feel like a valued member and I'm able to then, you know, go off and uh, independently do things, but I feel like I'm contributing to a team. You know, it's not just about, uh, it, it's all the things that come with the sport and, you, you know, you're not going to get that if you continually sat on the sideline. You're not part, you don't feel part of the team if you're just sat on the bench. So that that's different to, um, you know, having to cope with failure and having to integrate what it feels like when you lose or what it feels like when you've made a mistake. But if you're not even being given the opportunity and that's that's being driven by, again, I think this real pressure. And I I think I'm, I'm really mindful of, you know, it's very much a top-down thing that's really trickling through and having uh, this ripple effect of where it's so results-driven, you know, we're seeing managers now in particularly in rugby um kind of being changed mid-season or uh there's so much pressure on uh achieving you know a set result then I understand where it's coming from but at some point actually we need to start saying that that's not okay that that part of the system isn't okay so we don't need to have Eddie Jones sitting up on stage in front of 100 coaches because he's not the person we should be listening to because uh, he has to be results driven he, he can't be anything else that's what he's paid to do and that's what people come to watch they want to watch England win and that's absolutely fine I don't have any problems with that is he not someone we should say that's great if you want a results driven person on stage when you're in front of those 100 coaches you need someone completely different no, I think I don't think it would take away from the fact that Eddie Jones has a wealth of experience and knowledge. And, you know, particularly when he talked around um, what you could gain as a, perhaps a younger coach entering into um, the, the, the world of coaching was to really seek out somebody with 
potentially somebody who is nearing the end of their career, who is more willing to be cooperative and share information than seeing it as a threat or competition. So I'm not saying here that obviously, you know, when you're playing at elite levels, you obviously are wanting to win. That's that's part of what the team wants, right? It's not just a results driven from the top down from a systems perspective, but Eddie Jones is then going to have to work in his way within that system. That doesn't mean, though, you have to uh, you know, move away from your values or what is important in terms of seeing that this is, you know, um, people. And and I've used the term athlete, but, you know, there's there's also a lot of talk around actually saying children or teenagers or adults, because fundamentally it's people that we're working with. Um, and so a complete disregard of that in the face of just wanting results really concerns me and I think contributes to the difficulties that we're seeing in terms of mental health um, within sport and that that's across the level so I think that's coaches that are having difficulties that's um, athletes that are having difficulties it you know it has a real impact and what you've just said in terms of thinking in about people mm-hmm. seems to be it said a lot and it's a people business, yet I'm sure that's uh, paying lip service to the, the depth of understanding you need about people's emotions, how they react, how their lives are lived through and around the sports. And my sense is from the conversation and a lot of what you've been saying is that actually a lot of coaches, and I'm, I'm one of them, has only really scratched the surface of what you're suggesting and it's it's almost scary mm. that we don't know enough about who the, who the people are in front of us of course we've got some ideas and we've got some previous experience which, which we can draw on and our enthusiasm probably helps us get through some of those areas mm-hmm. i really sense that there needs to be a lot more education and support for coaches coming in to help them sense the situations uh, i mean i mean we started talking about learning environments and creating better ways to uh operate in with a safe uncertain yet for me it seems to go a lot deeper than that yeah and i sense that we've we've got to make a, a fundamental change in our approach perhaps yeah i think i guess i'm really i'm really struck by um I think it's something that's also within our culture, wider culture, and not just sports, but this never enoughness. So um, that actually we continually go to, um, you know, professional development um, days. We are, and they are important. Don't get me wrong. Um, and the tactical, technical elements again are important because these are things that really help establish, I suppose, a level of trust from the athletes to the coach by knowing that they are competent and they are skilled. But that is just one element, that is one facet um, that actually what we really need to be focusing on from kind of a coach perspective is, you know, an ability to collaboratively um, work with the people that are in front of you, that you're actually helping them integrate involvement of, you know, not just the cognitive elements, but their emotional, their physical, their interpersonal worlds. Um, that you do have to be focused, that you have to, you know, um, have an ability to uh, understand what it is that, you know, you're setting out to do in your session. But at the same time, you have the fluidity and um, dynamic approach to, you know, 
working with what's in front of you. So I'm really mindful that, you know, some coaches will, you know, spend a long time, you know, preparing their session plan and other coaches don't, they, they take a different approach. Um, but it's, it's also thinking about who that's for. And so actually how much that is regulating the coach's anxiety, right? That if they've done this perfect plan, but if that doesn't allow you to deviate and, and go with what's in front of you, then it really stifles. It's not dynamic because dynamic means, to, you know, movement. It's, a, it's really responding to, it's almost like improv, right? So it's like responding to what's in front of you rather than a... Uh, assumption about the player that you had in front of you last week so if you're not open to um seeing the player for as they are in this moment in time then you're almost um relating to you know whether it's a week ago or what it is you think you know about that player but it's not actually the reality that's in front of you and I do think yes we need more information around um and there needs to be more education around the importance of relationships and why and how they're developed and, you know, the changes that are happening and helping people to understand um, the changes that are happening during particularly adolescence. But I think, again, that's something that, you know, is is lacking in the wider public knowledge. It's not just in the sporting domain. And I'm, I'm mindful that, you know, coaches are incredibly dedicated, incredibly passionate about the work they do. Um, and sometimes it's not always about going to more CPD events it's really being comfortable with that you know what what they are doing being comfortable with being really open and present in the moment it sounds like lots of work to do for lots of us and I'm not I'm not saying it's never enoughness I think it probably means a slightly different approach well Suzanne some brilliant ideas and many avenues to explore uh, perhaps again, if you're if you're happy to come on and uh, chat to us, uh, but I would uh, would really like to know a little bit more about your website because I'm sure that there's going to be lots of resources on there that would really benefit the coaches. So just tell us a little bit about uh, where it is and what's on there. Yeah. Okay. So um, it's www.emotionallyconnected.co.uk um, and it will have information and resources so there's um, a variety of uh, TED talks that I just personally find interesting but I think um, we can really you know uh, cross specialize and apply um, lots of different things um, that are out there in different domains into how we think about um, ourselves so our own self-care um, and that's something else that you know I've spoken to quite a lot of coaches about um, in, in terms of opening up a space for that discussion um, as I said there is the PDF document that if people want to look at the triangle of safe and certainty and one of the things I would say with that is um, it's really used as a guide so it's to help you begin to think about because we're not always going to be in safe and certain it's beginning to become more aware so for coaches to use it as a reflexive practice of when they're in unsafe and certain when they're in a bit safe certainty you know they're not wanting to um perhaps let the athlete face failure or you know so they're keeping it quite safe they they the athlete can you know do the the task really easily it's really to use as a guide because it is dynamic we will be all moving around that triangle at different points um throughout the day so um to begin i guess to open up that awareness um, and then I'm going to be adding more resources, particularly around um, value driven work, because I think that's something I'm 
becoming uh, more aware of in terms of when I speak to coaches, you know, thinking about why it is that you do what you do, right? It's, um, you know, you've chosen to be a coach or, you know, the coach life chose you for a reason. Um, and, and I think a lot of that is to do with our values and helping people um, realize again when they're aligning with their values and when they're not and what's impacting that and, and how that happens with the systems. So, um, yeah, feel free to head on over. And there's also some blogs on there. I've got a recent blog um, from the, the Eddie Jones uh, day and some of the bits and bobs in terms of thinking about which might be of interest, you know, um, athletes and injury and thinking about the mind-body connection um, and how uh, emotions play a huge part in injury. Right. And I would emphasize to coaches that these are very important things to look at because we mustn't ignore ourselves in the whole process. It's very much a case that coaches think, well, I'm doing it for the guys, I'm doing it for the team, um, and I want just to pass on my knowledge I don't think you should think like that. I think you should think almost selfishly that there's you're getting a lot out of it and you should understand what you're getting out of it and how to deal with the, the downsides because if you can get that enthusiasm right, if you're better prepared and more mindful of your own development, I'm sure that that must impact positively on the players. I think I'm right in saying that. Yeah, absolutely. And I think um, it's definitely something that, um, hopefully is growing in, in you know more attention because um, your well-being as a coach is is vital to everything that you do and um, you know we we are human we're going to have days that are more difficult than others you know we we try our best to again be consistent and reliable but not at the expense of um, our own mental health or well-being so um, I think it's really vital that coaches do take care of themselves I think um, you know, part of that is being able to put in boundaries around, you know, when work ends and when it doesn't, which seems very difficult. Um, but also um, really having a space where it's OK to talk about it. I think um, recognizing that, you know, we all expect, you know, mental health exists on a continuum. So it's not that you either have bad mental health or good mental, you know, it's it varies and that will vary throughout what's ever, you know, what's going on in your life. So. Um, absolutely, it's going to be influencing how you're relating and responding to others if you're having a difficult time. And just being mindful and aware of that, like you said, really growing your capacity to um, be self-aware and self-reflective and and having an appropriate space to talk about it. So I think it's so important that coaches are being given supervision, not just on the content, but the process of what's happening. You know, you hold a lot. Um, you're expected to be a lot. You're expected to be way more than just a coach so you know you really need a, a space for time to reflect on that and the impact it's having on you well Suzanne it's been extremely valuable just uh, letting you explain all these things and I'm sure that the coaches have listened to thought right well I need to look for that support whether it actually means doing a bit more reading or seeking out other coaches as well and I think that's very important. Uh, we keep talking about what's important, and that's that's part of the reason why we need to create a bit more awareness. Mm. So um, I just like to say that the just a bit of uh, admin, in a sense, that uh, this podcast is released fortnightly on a Wednesday. And head over to our blog tab on rugbycoachweekly.net to catch up on any episodes you've missed. But I must say, I found that thoroughly enjoyable and 
well, I wouldn't say a little scary, uh, but I certainly feel, though I feel safe, I certainly feel very uncertain uh, that I need to go and do a lot more reading. I don't feel particularly angry, uh, uh, but I think I'm uh, in a place where I'm keen to improve my own coaching from what you've said. So, Suzanne, thank you very much for that. That's been fantastic. You're very welcome. I've really enjoyed it. Good. Well, so much to learn and so much more to find out about how we can develop, not just in terms of our skills and techniques with game players to win games of rugby, uh, but in terms of how do we develop ourselves. So thank you very much, uh, Suzanne, and thank you everyone for listening and uh, hope to speak to you all very soon. Thanks, Dan.